Hello everyone, this is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to episode 15 of Everything Compliance. Everything Compliance is a roundtable podcast of some of the top commentators in compliance. On this episode, we have Matt Kelly, founder and editor of Radical Compliance, Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitors, who is the Vice President, Business Development and Monitoring Specialist at Affiliated Monitors. Also, Jonathan Armstrong, a partner at Quartery Compliance from London. This is the second part of a two-part episode, which was recorded in Houston, Texas on July 12, 2017. Last week, we had Matt Kelly and Jay Rosen's comments. Today, it's Jonathan Armstrong's and myself, Tom Fox's. We mix things up a little bit on this episode as I ask each of the panelists to prepare some topics and throw out for the group's discussion rather than each panelist focus on one topic. Jonathan focused on the new GDPR, but used that as a starting point for an exploration of such topics that are more unique to the European data privacy and data protection scene, including the right to be forgotten, big data and compliance, and more specifically, whether antitrust issues will be wrapped up into data privacy enforcement going forward. He reviews six years of the Serious Fraud Office and the UK Bribery Act in England. He talked about the Rolls-Royce case and what it might mean for the Serious Fraud Office going forward. He also talked about the shift in the burden of proof that he's beginning to note in SFO prosecutions and how that troubles him from a legal perspective. I raise the following issues. In view of the Trump administration's abysmal performance at the G20, will other countries ramp up their anti-corruption enforcement? I ask, will the Chicken Shit Club book by Jesse Isinger make any difference going forward? Three months ago, the SFO appeared to be in trouble, at least if you listen to remarks by Theresa May. Now it is leading, literally, the world's anti-corruption charge. Will we see more aggressive enforcement coming out of the UK? I see compliance and business, excuse me, compliance programs as a business response to such laws as the FCPA and the UK Bribery Act. Now that compliance has become inculcated into the business process of most energy companies with attendant benefits, under the Trump administration's enforcement of the SEC, excuse me, FCPA, will there be a pullback on the business side of things? And finally, I can't help but talk about the Houston Astros, who have the second best re- record in baseball. Can a newcomer to the American League really succeed and win the AL? Are the Astros merely renting the second best record in baseball? And what do the panelists see for the Astros for the second half of the season? It's a fascinating exploration. We had a ton of fun doing it, and I'm sure you will equally enjoy listening to it. This is Tom Fox. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Everything Compliance. Everything Compliance is part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Jonathan Armstrong, you have joined us from uh, London in Houston this week. You're speaking tomorrow, as as is Matt, at the Gerber uh, Annual Members Only Conference. But uh, what's been on your mind, and what do you want to throw out, and uh, you want to build on anything you've heard, or you want to take things in a different way? 
Yeah, I think in many respects, I want to build on things that I've heard already and add maybe a few more uh, themes to that. I think we've already dealt with things like GDPR enforcement, which would would have been on my list. What I'm quite concerned about is the right to be forgotten currently. We've talked about this a little bit before. So just as a refresher, there's a judge-made right to be forgotten. At the moment, that becomes a statutory right under uh, GDPR. And it's the right of any individual, doesn't necessarily have to be an EU national, to go to a data controller, so somebody who holds data, and says, please erase that data. It's also called the right to erasure. And my concern isn't necessarily with the law itself, but my concern is more with the fact that, for example, some mainstream news organisations have very thin revenues now from stories. So if a well-resourced team uh, a well-resourced individual, let's say he's close to a the Russian regime, for example, decides that they don't want a story to be told, they exercise this right to be forgotten. And my worry is that some news outlets won't even do a threshold test whether the right to be forgotten applies or not. They'll just see an army of lawyers approaching them. They'll look at the story and see that they've only made 60 cents in advertising revenue on the right-hand side of that page in the last month, and they'll just flick that story off. So I'd be particularly interested in the journalist's view on whether my fears are unfounded and whether some news organisations are going to look at are going to be very defensive on the right to be forgotten and are not going to look at the exemptions which would allow them to maintain those stories. And why does that matter to compliance officers particularly? Well, it matters because so much of what we do relies on KYC checks, uh, relies on know your client checks. And if those checks are inaccurate and we get a clear search on somebody because they've made it a clear search, rather than because they haven't been associated with a bad regime in the past. That isn't in the public interest, and it also potentially puts a lot of corporations in real difficulty because, yes, they did the search, but they didn't uh, didn't do the search that unearthed the stuff that would have been patently obvious, perhaps, on further inquiry. So that's one of my things. I'm probably left with only four. Um, I'm also just interested with the whole big data piece. I don't think we've got our handle round what that means in terms of compliance. And it seems to me there's almost two aspects we need to think through. First of all, I think we've talked about this before, that, that GDPR and big data and antitrust and fair trade regulation are coming together like never before. So if we take Uber, for example, which I know, Matt, you've talked about quite a bit, you could, let's put this neutrally, you could put a case together for saying that Uber has become dominant in some markets. So that's an antitrust competition law issue. You know, have they gone from a startup too dominant in some markets too quickly? I know I speak to French Uber drivers, for example, who say that they think that that's the case and antitrust regulators should take a look at them there. Have they dealt with people fairly? For example, have they priced women leaving nightclubs more aggressively than males leaving nightclubs? 
have they priced women leaving nightclubs in bad parts of town more aggressively? And if so, was that fair if that wasn't disclosed? And is it fair, even if it is disclosed, to charge women who are vulnerable and could be uh, attacked in these particular areas where the areas have a history of attack on women? Is it fair to charge them more? And then I'm trying to be neutral. And then thirdly, in that same fact pattern, are data protection offences created as well? Has that individual's data been handled fairly? Have all those principles of data protection law? So it seems to me one of the issues we're going to get with big data is we can get circumstances in which there's almost a triangle of regulators and how do they deal with that? We're already starting to see in places like Germany, antitrust regulators say, well, actually, we can regulate the data piece as well. And we're also seeing things like the right to data portability under GDPR try and look at antitrust issues wrapped up in data privacy legislation. So I think how do we regulate big data is one big question going forward. But the flip side of that, of course, is how do regulators use big data to bring enforcement action? So we might well see this with the Trump Jr. emails, for example. We can, uh, we can look at large volumes of data like that, like never before. And emails, the perpetual witness to wrongdoing, it has a timestamp. People say dumb things on emails, as we've said already. And I spoke to one regulator one time who said the first thing he does when he gets a big pot of data is he does a keyword search for the words, if this get, gets out, then. And he says that just leads him to the heart of wrongdoing quite quickly. So, that, so that's, um, that's one of my list. Um, then... then Two, um, one more solid. Obviously, it's six years since um, since Bribery Act enforcement started. You've already alluded to it, Tom. I think we had relatively so slow starts, some uh, slightly amusing but trivial cases initially. Then we've moved into things like the Rolls-Royce investigation. And is Rolls-Royce almost the coming of age of the Bribery Act? Is it its... Um, you know, it's 21st, is it the bar mitzvah of the, of, the, of the Bribery Act in some respects? We've seen extensive cooperation as a feature with uh, Austria, Germany, the Netherlands, Singapore, Turkey. Again, we've seen big data as an element there. 30 million documents seized, and those 30 million documents may well uh, contain smoking guns to other organisations, just as we've seen you know, in some of these Houston-led investigations where you start with one corporation, then that leads you to another eight, then almost certainly I think we can expect Rolls-Royce uh, to, to be another example of that. And also the level of fine, you know, by UK standards, it's significant. Just as a reminder, 497 million uh, sterling, $167 million to the US authorities, and a relatively small $25 uh, million fine to to Brazil. Um, and it seems to me that uh, that in some respects, the Rolls-Royce case could be game-changing. I think it's certainly got more attention when I've been doing the uh, the, the walk around, around, around Houston, I think, uh, as well. Um, so I think we've gone from almost mid-level corruption in mid-sized corporations, which was the, you know, the first phase of the 
bribery act, or rather the second phase, because individuals were the first prosecuted by the CPS. And now we're getting into, into some bigger investigations that are just around the pike, I think. And then my last thing is almost, I suppose it's a, it's a lawyer's discussion in some respects, but I think it's also relevant to compliance officers, is actually, is the burden of proof on all of this stuff reversing? You know, we're seeing in in data privacy actions, regulators say, well, actually, show us that you took good, good care of this data. We're seeing in bribery investigations, Rolls-Royce, show us that you supervise the agents properly. We've lost the fact, and I think some of the legislation is written this way, in an old-fashioned world, the prosecutor had to make out his case. And I think increasingly we're seeing, particularly in the in the compliance environment, that that burden has shifted. The prosecutors are saying to the corporation, prove to us that you did everything you possibly could to, to stop bad things happening. And I think that's a real challenge for compliance officers in terms of, you know, you're not on the defensive anymore. You've got to be prepared to go on the offensive. That means you're going to have to make sure that you're training stands up to scrutiny you're gonna you know off the shelf uh you know buy at volume commodity training just isn't going to cut it with any regulator against that higher threshold you're going to have to make sure that your processes and procedures are good you're going to have to make sure that you recruit wisely into key positions that you remunerate people properly and that you've got these defensible processes and procedures throughout the organization so i think in some respects it's an opportunity for compliance officers particularly to say to the board you know we can't just sit back and whack away these threats as they come in we've got to get ahead of the game but also i'm just wondering if you know almost aesthetically from a public policy point of view is it right that we're just shifting the burden so much you know we i, th I think we rarely see prosecutors go out and prove their case anymore because they'll get enough of a case to force surrender from the corporation things like declinations disgorgement you know they're making out half the case then the corporation is expected to backfill the rest and is is that good from a from a public policy point of view well, as the sitting journalist on the panel, I'll pick up on the uh, right to erasure and the right to be forgotten, because I struggle with that a bit, too. Um, on the practical question of what will news organizations do, and would they really uh, do a cost-benefit analysis of do we want to maintain our journalistic principles or just cut our losses, avoid litigation costs? Oh, yeah, there's going to be plenty who'll throw their principles out the window, assuming they could even f get the wherewithal to think in that sophisticated terms. And there will be many news organizations that don't because there's going to be, especially in the online world, a lot of news organizations that uh, are very small. They're not very sophisticated. They won't necessarily know um, how much ad money are they getting on their website because of an article. Um, you know, I, I don't take ads on my website, but I know if I did, I wouldn't be able to tell you that either. And I would make a distinction. I don't like this phrase, right to be forgotten, because it does straddle news organizations and the issues there, and it straddles a very legitimate right to be forgotten if I'm entering into a commercial transaction with a business online 
as a customer. After that, I should have the right to be forgotten after the transaction is done so that Uber does not necessarily follow my location everywhere or Facebook does not see the web pages I visit after I'm done with the transaction and then pop up ads, something like that. Yeah, you know, that is a transactional case-by-case basis. That's very different than as a news organization would I you know, potentially see legal action from somebody who had a sex registry offense um, that they wanted to be forgotten about. A newspaper doesn't have any transaction with someone who is the subject of a story necessarily. I write about Donald Trump on a regular basis. I'm, you know, I, he's not my customer. I'm not in a transaction with him. You he, only lunch with him once a week. So diaries never mesh. Yeah, it's not as if there is a transaction there where one party can say the transaction has been done and therefore you can forget about me from now on, and I, the other party, have to comply. That sort of thing I'm okay with. But there have already been cases. I want to say out of Spain. You might know this better than me, but there was almost immediately, as soon as Europe had articulated a right to be forgotten, somebody somewhere who did have a child pedophilia criminal conviction in his past was starting to tell newspapers, you need to get rid of this. I want to be forgotten. Uh, no, you don't. That's a, there is a legitimate news interest there. And we could talk about the mechanics of the news business that a lot of times there will be uh, articles that are recycled somewhere else, or if you're sharing them on Facebook and whatnot, you might not necessarily know where your content is always running. And um, therefore, does somebody have the right to be forgotten on my site, but not on the site that is repurposing my content? I, I don't necessarily know. Uh, but how far down that rabbit hole do we want to go? Um, but the right to end a transaction with finality which is a terrible way to phrase it, but something like that, that, that I think is fine for data protection if that's what people want to do. But isn't the issue, from my point of view, is that you know, people who are mad at Uber uh, for remembering their records rarely bring proceedings. Rich oligarchs with teams of 20 attorneys pretty often do. And I don't think the legislation intended to allow, you know, criminals, fraudsters, people from corrupt regimes to erase their past. I don't think in some respects the legislation does go as far as they claim that it does in the sort of letters that, you know, that we receive. You know, we're receiving them already or our clients are with right to be forgotten requests that I think are, are improperly founded under the law as it currently exists and the law under it as it will exist. But I think it takes a fairly robust client to say, this is why the right to be forgotten doesn't apply in this case, and we'll resist you. And from some of those cases that I've been involved with, uh, let's just say it is at least coincidental that our client and, 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 you know, us on behalf of our client have resisted uh, stories about certain individuals and said that we're going to keep them going. But... Almost every other news organization has all of a sudden, you know, returns nil on a search on their site against that individual. And that that gives me at least a working suspicion that many news organizations are already caving into right to be forgotten requests. I, I think it raises another question that might sound esoteric, but I, in the fullness of time, I don't think it will be, is, you know, what is a news organization really going to be? I can remember once uh, at a conference not long ago, I heard the 
president of Oracle, Mark Hurd, he was talking about life in social media, where all of your customers are their own media organizations. He's right. Uh, so if that's one reality, and here we are talking about news media with these sort of predefined definitions that don't necessarily fit the real world, um, how are we going to make this work? And I don't know. But uh, I, you know, that sort of issue, yeah, I've got some real problems with basically people unhappy with press coverage strong-arming their way to shut something down, and there's plenty of examples of that. Uh, the Trump administration has tried to do that. Melania Trump filed suit against a very tiny little organization. I want to say a blogger in the United States. Uh, he was printing some unflattering allegations about her past before she married the president, and um, they sued him, and he took the article down. And now that's a libel case as opposed to the right to be forgotten, but you know, in another couple of years over in Europe, that's what she would have been doing. And you, know, I, you have to wonder how this is going to play out. Mm. Let me take your point on uh, burden shifting. <clears throat> because um, in the United States, uh, that has been the case actually since I've been playing in the FCPA space. Right. And it really ties into if you have not documented your compliance program, including your policies, processes, and procedures, in the government's eyes, it never happened. And we've actually had enforcement actions from as far back as 2008 uh, where that was the case. Um, so the enforcement action was the insurance giant Aon, who brought certain representatives from a foreign country's Department of in uh, Insurance to the United States for training on the specific insurance products that Aon and others had available. Clearly in marketing effort, nevertheless, uh, also uh, educational program, uh, no, no allegation that it was uh, trips to Disneyland, Disney World, any of that. But what Aon failed to do was fill out all of the forms around gifts, travel, and entertainment for foreign government officials. That was enough to sustain an FCPA violation, at least on the civil side of things. Mm -hmm. So uh, the... Uh, Tom Fox mantra of document, 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 really uh, derived from that, that if you uh, don't have it documented in the regulator's eyes, it never happened. Uh, I suppose the, the kind of the legal uh, uh, way to say that would be that it really does shift the burden. When the SEC or the Department of Justice comes knocking uh, and there's some evidence of an FCPA violation, it's really incumbent upon you to prove that a violation didn't happen. And you prove that through having uh, documented uh, policies, procedures, um, and processes going forward. So um, that's actually been, uh, I think, the reality here in the United States for uh, at least, like I said, since 2007, 2008. And, and I think most companies uh, understand that they have to have the documents to prove the, uh, prove the negative. So... Um, I guess that doesn't offend me uh, <laughs> uh, particularly, although uh, I will say that uh, I do agree with your analysis. It does shift the burden, and it does give um, – uh, puts a burden on companies to bring forward affirmative evidence to show that they did everything they could to prevent a bribe being paid if indeed one was paid. The, uh, the other thing you really got me intrigued, though, with antitrust issues wrapped up in data privacy – um, it's too bad Mike Volkoff's not here. He'd probably be salivating over that. Yeah. Um, because uh, he comes out of the antitrust division. And um, to have that kind of, uh, 
analysis, it just, uh, with not really understanding either antitrust law or data privacy law, it seems to be that that opens up a world of regulations and uh, regulatory aspects for an aggressive regulator uh, that was not open to them before. And if they're able to utilize the failure of a company to follow data privacy requirements in an antitrust context, certainly in the United States, the penalties... Um, are exponential, three times. Yeah, yeah. And uh, as we've seen uh, from the EU regulators, they can uh, spank U.S. companies pretty hard mm-hmm. uh, as well. And if is the fact that you have captured the data in one sphere, is that an antitrust violation? You, you of course, pointed to Uber. Yeah. Um, uh, the, the kind of the rule of thumb in the United States is if you have more than 70% of market share, uh, you're moving towards a monopolistic uh, uh, position. And uh, there are some cities in the United States where I think it's probably fair to say Uber is moving towards that in terms of rider share, uh-huh. certainly in the ride sharing aspect, uh, separate and apart from taxi cabs. And if in that space, those same sort of general rules of thumb apply, uh, does that mean the information that Uber has obtained, does that somehow wrap now back into an antitrust violation? I don't pretend to know the answers to those questions, but it's certainly a fascinating question. You know, I'd, I'm going to jump in. Okay, disclosure, I am not a lawyer. But I do recall um, that in the U.S. at least, you know, the primary question about antitrust is, is there harm to the consumer? Um, as opposed to in Europe where it's more, is there harm to the competitive environment? Correct me if I'm wrong. But I think that's a big distinction. Now, right. okay, so I took Uber over here from my hotel to this studio. It was cheaper than a cab. Mm-hmm. So where's the harm to me, the consumer? I didn't feel any. And I would wonder how we are going to straddle that sort of difference Um it's a fascinating subject. I don't have more than that, but I mean, that's a question that would have to be answered. But what about the driver who was driving people from the, you know, the no, no doubt grand hotel you're in, Matt, to to the studio here? You know, he, he used to do that sort of stuff three years ago, and now he's, what, cleaning tables in Subway. I can see that point too. I mean, I I don't. I know at least, for example, in Boston, uh, we have a very active competition between Uber and Lyft. I know drivers uh, personally, some acquaintances of mine who are drivers for both. Uh-huh. And depending on which ride, uh, which app dings first, they'll put up their little Uber or their little Lyft sign on the dashboard, and they'll drive around. Um, I can see the harm that taxis would face because at one point in the past, they paid a boatload for medallions that are not worth anything anymore, and they are not wrong to complain about that. But for somebody new to the uh, chauffeur business, uh, they've got many different options to be a chauffeur, and the consumer has many different apps that he could use. Um I would kind of compare it to internet access. You know, does Comcast have a monopoly or not? Uh, it's got a monopoly on cable in the United States, but it doesn't have a monopoly on the internet. I could get it through my phone. I could get it from Starbucks. I could get it from Comcast. It's a similar sort of dynamic. You know, we're talking about different types of transit through different services, but you know, we could probably go down that rabbit hole too for quite a while. So uh, we're running up uh, probably uh, close to the end of our time if we're going to get a rant in. So uh, we've gone through most of the uh, questions that I had, but I would like to add just a couple of uh, points. 
Um, so once again, uh, as we noted in the introduction, that there will be adult language used in this podcast. And uh, the next thing I wanted to bring up is the book which was released in the United States on Tuesday, uh, The Chicken Chick Club. And uh, my book is... Uh, <clears throat> courtesy of Amazon Prime, waiting for me at home, but I've not read it. I've read all the reviews I could find, and I don't know if you've read some reviews or not. I don't know if you've heard no. of the book. Okay. So it's a book about uh, the Justice Department and their lack of uh, trials against uh, big banks and uh, uh, in the post-financial crisis era, and really since uh, kind of the Enron era, 2001 to kind of 2003 here. Uh, and I want to tie that into the SFO, though. Because um, three months ago, the SFO was out of control. Termeer Sermay was going to disband them. They were on their last legs. They just had this huge settlement with Rolls-Royce. And what do they do? They bring the first action against a financial institution uh, for the financial crisis. You know, we didn't do that here in the United States. It's a little old SFO over there. And uh, it seems to me, just kind of reading the uh, uh, business paper commentary, that the UK business journalists see this as a positive in terms of aggressive regulation, or at least even regulation willing to take on a Barclays bank, willing to take on a former CEO at Barclays and three senior executives, and that this is a validation of the British legal system. Um, and the Chicken Shit Club is a book about, uh, like I said, the Department of Justice failing to bring any actions. And the author really goes in a uh, a little bit different direction, I think, than others have gone, uh, because he talks about not really the revolving door in uh, government, uh, in the Justice Department and big law firms, but really how uh, when people go to the Justice Department or go to big law or go to big law or go back to the Justice Department, it's just career moves now, and you're at some point in your career. And it's the same people at the same law schools, hanging out at the same places, uh, having their kids go to the same schools. Uh, and this big uh, good old boy club, and that they uh, don't want to either upset their chances for partnership at a prestigious firm by bringing aggressive prosecutions when they're with the government, or they don't want to uh, uh, upset uh, big companies that might hire them. And that's really a different angle that I don't think anyone's taken before. Uh, so here in, we're recording here in Houston, where there was uh, really the last big white collar trial against a U.S. Corp big U.S. corporation, which is Enron. And the uh, <clears throat> Andrew Weissman was part of that task force. Leslie Caldwell was part of that task force. Samuel Buell at uh, Duke was part of that task force. So uh, very successful, very aggressive prosecutions uh, by the U.S. government. Um, and to the, to the extent we can comment on a book that we haven't read yet, we've only read the reviews, I wondered uh, kind of what uh, you all's thoughts might be on that. And then... Um, What's kind of the sense of the SFO now, particularly after this Barclays thing? Because, like I said, you know, nobody in the U.S. brought a prosecution, and there's the SFO on its last legs, out of control, uh, bringing a criminal indictment against the former CEO of Barclays. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, from my point of view, I think morale is very important for the SFO at the moment. I think the difficulty that they have had, I mean, clearly, I think on anyone's measures the you know the Rolls-Royce case was game-changing for them and I think you certainly saw um, I certainly saw almost a visible change in uh, in in one individual particularly you know the uh, even you know from looking down at the floor to looking 
uh, you know, directly at, at eye level at people. And so I think it's hard to underestimate how much of a sea change that was. And in some respects, Theresa May's sort of renewed attack, it wasn't a new attack. She's never, I don't think, been a, a great fan of the SFO, was, was unfortunate in terms of timing. And, and, <laughs> <laughs> and, in, and partly the issue, of course, is recruitment. That in the UK, the organisations like the SFO pay far, far less than the private sector. Sure. You know, David Green has talked about in the big data arena this new computer to sweat data on investigations. And, and I said to him uh, at, a, at a meeting, you know, this is all very well, but who is it that's going to run the computer? And his solution to the brain drain from the SFO was to take, uh, his partial solution was to take gap year students from university and have them do uh, a, a year's gap year running, running the big data uh, investigations. And, and that, I think, is a mark of how strained the resources are. And the difficulty is, of course, is that even if Theresa May can't get the political will to abolish the SFO, but she's still not a fan, is she going to be the one that's going to write more checks for them to increase their headcount or to get um, you know, staff who command a higher salary? Probably not. It's this director's last term. He said he's going to go at the end of the term. Who is going to replace him? And who particularly is going to go into an organisation that pays below average salary that potentially is under threat from the government of abolition? It's hard to, you know, if you're a recruiter, that isn't your ideal engagement to go out to the market with, is it? And I don't think we have the history in the UK of almost zigzagging through, uh, through one's professional career. So I think there are some individuals in the US, aren't there, who start out in government, then go into private sector, back into government, and each time they're increasing up the ladder. I think you do have a similar situation from what I understand in France with the juge d'instruction model, for example, where they might go between prosecutor and judge, but we don't have that culture in the UK. And generally speaking, when somebody goes, you know, people like David Green have a relatively small time in the private sector, but I think I'm right in saying the majority of his time is in various public roles. And it's unusual for somebody like that to, to zigzag between the two. And I think that, again, makes the salary issue even more of an issue because if you're going to try and hold somebody in a particular career for 30 years that's different between saying to somebody look take a hundred thousand dollars less than you're worth this year but then you'll go into a big law firm next year and you'll make that hundred thousand dollars up because of the increased reputation you have as a result of your time in government. So I think the whole thing is challenging. I think looking at it objectively, you would say that um, that actually David Green's done a pretty good job of focusing on what he's doing and not allowing these um, these you know barbed darts that are being thrown across the petition uh, to get at him. I think, and I think is unhelpful 
that, that Theresa May has launched this sort of attack, but without a cogent plan on what can happen instead, other than some vagueish plan to merge it with some other agency, which some are saying has no proper track record of enforcement uh, in any event. I will only say about the Chicken Shit Club, which I have not read that book, but I mean, the the, the general lines of argument there, I think, are pretty easily understood. Um, I will give lawyers a little bit more credit than that, that I think that all of them, or the vast majority of them, zealously represent their client. And sometimes their client is the prosecutor service that they are with. Sometimes it is somebody on the other side. Um, but all of that aside, the far better way to handle the financial crisis, or more specifically to prevent it the next time, is not the threat of tough criminal enforcement. It is the proper oversight on the civil side. Um, you know, the most important regulators for the financial crisis were not the Justice Department. It was the FDIC, it was the Federal Reserve, and it was the Treasury Department. And an awful lot of people worked hard there to make sure that we did not, you know, go down in flames as a country. And we went down a lot, and it could have been a whole lot worse. Um, you know, is it fair to say that Anthony Mozillo, who was the president and CEO of Countrywide Financial, did he commit misconduct? Did people not like him? Should he have faced charges? Plenty of people will say yes. But um, the bigger issue for the country as a whole is the fact that Countrywide was a terrible risk for this financial system. And Countrywide is not here anymore. It got subsumed at pretty much regulatory gunpoint by Bank of America, which didn't want to buy it. And the feds called up Bank of America and said, yeah, you have to buy it. You know, there was an awful lot of sacrifice and punishment of the banking system that did happen. Now, it doesn't feel like it to us because we want justice, because we feel aggrieved, because we feel the perception of undeserved privilege that some of these executives got. But as a whole, the banking system was a wheezing, risky train wreck in 2008. It could have been a whole lot worse than it was. Do we want vigorous enforcement? Sure. However, the big ball to keep your eye on is to make sure that we regulate it more effectively on the civil side so that we don't go through this again at some point in the future. And that's I, – I question how much the Chicken Shit Club addresses those kind of points. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Everything Compliance, at least as much as we enjoyed recording it and bringing it to you. If you have listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate our podcast. It would help in our rankings and help get the word out about the only roundtable compliance podcast in existence. Also, if you have any questions, please feel free to email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. I, I hope you will plan to join us because in our next episode, we are going to review Jesse Eisinger's book, The Chicken Shit Club. And I think you will find it a fascinating podcast. Uh, the book is certainly very, very interesting and raises many, many questions that I need, think need to be debated and, at the end of the day, answered. This is Tom Fox. Thank you very much for joining me on this second part of a two-part episode of Everything Compliance. Everything Compliance is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network.
podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.